Greetings and salutations, everyone. It's me, Michael Anthony Judasusi, here for the All Things Billy podcast. I'm not going to take much time because this is it. This is the moment you've all been waiting for, or some of you have been waiting for. This is the release of my very first audiobook, absolutely free, right here on the All Things Billy podcast. Back to Billy is the first novel I ever wrote, one of number six, one of six in a series. And I'm not going to tell you much more about it. You've probably all heard about it already. So what will happen, this uh, episode will have the first 20 chapters, basically a quarter of the book. Episode number two, which will also be posted uh, by the time you listen to this, will have the next 20 chapters. And within the next 48 hours, the last half of the book will also be posted. So you're looking for four episodes. They'll be labeled parts one through four. You can download them via any podcast software uh, or podcast platform that you listen on, and uh, you can save them. It'll be free for 90 days. You have 90 days to listen, re-listen, talk, discuss, email, whatever. After 90 days, I'm going to take them down, and then the audiobook will be for sale on Audible. But you, as my loyal listeners... I don't know how loyal you are, but <laughs> but my listeners uh, get this uh, opportunity to uh, to listen uh, absolutely for free. Uh, and uh, this is the uh, story I carried around in my head for 25 years until I finally put it into book format. So without further ado, I invite you and me and all of our Billy the Kid fanatics to go back to Billy. Back to Billy by Michael Anthony Judasissi. Back to Billy is copywritten 2021, Michael Anthony Judasissi and Mankind Productions. This book is a work of fiction. Any names, characters, businesses, places, events, locales, and incidents are either the product of the author's imagination or used in a fictitious manner. Any resemblance to actual persons, living or dead, or actual events is purely coincidental. PowerShot Publishing, Albuquerque, New Mexico. Chapter 1. Lincoln, New Mexico, November 1878. The big man hit the ground hard, with a puff of dust escaping into the air. And then, almost as quickly as he appeared, he was gone. What the hell, yelled Billy, confused. Where in the hell did he go? Ten years older and at least ten years wiser, French replied, In all my years, I ain't never seen nothing like that. That's some kind of dark magic, Billy. Billy and French stared for a moment into the blank spot that just moments before was filled by Martin Teebs, but the approach of a group of deputies brought them back to reality. Billy had just shot and killed his two guards while escaping from the house, where he'd been held for over a week. Let's get the hell out of here, Frenchie. Time to say goodbye to Lincoln, proclaimed Billy. Surveying the quickly approaching mass of guns, balls, and bloodlust, French nodded in assent. The two men ran off Lincoln's only street, guns still drawn, into the livery stable where Jose Chavez y Chavez waited with their mounts. As Billy took one last turn to where Teebs vanished, a great wailing cry was heard as the news of his departure spread around Lincoln. The prettiest woman in all of Lincoln County, Rosita Luna, had just learned that her new beau was gone, missing, disappeared, with no prospects of return. 
Billy sighed and whispered to himself, Damn, Teebs, what the hell just happened? Chapter 2 Manchester, New Hampshire, 1975 Faster, Arlo, screamed a very pregnant Sheila Teebs. With her first child firmly in the clutches of labor, their old psychedelic econoline van screamed down the Everett Turnpike in search of the Catholic Medical Center emergency room. Like, chill, babe, I'm going as fast as I can, replied Arlo. You don't want to, like, get into an accident before we even get there, do you? Sheila bit her lip, both in the throes of a powerful contraction and to keep from saying something that Arlo would surely regret. Finally, as the contraction passed, she said, Well, I don't want to have this baby here in your dirty old van. Arlo couldn't help but laugh out loud at the joke that was already forming in his head. If not for the fat joint he'd smoked an hour before, he might have had enough self-control to keep it to himself. Why not, babe? We made him in the van. We can have him here, too. Arlo howled in delight at the joke as Sheila was in the throes of another powerful contraction. Saying nothing, she reached down to her belly and just glared at the man she'd only decided to marry a year before. Sheila and Arlo had met at Woodstock when they both did indeed eat the brown acid. A student at St. Anselm College, Sheila was a bright intellectual with a bent for fashion. Arlo, on the other hand, barely escaped high school with a diploma and had been working odd jobs ever since graduation. He was the fun, carefree kind of guy that Sheila rarely met at school, and she found him charming. Arlo smoked a lot of pot, loved to listen to music, and railed stridently against Nixon in the Vietnam War. The unlikely pair consummated their two-day relationship near the vats of granola at Woodstock and had been together ever since. With the soon-to-be arrival of baby Teebs, Arlo had landed a job as an intern at an advertising agency. He wore a shirt and tie every day that he took to calling a monkey suit and likened to being in prison. Labeling nearly everyone he worked with as squares, Arlo nevertheless decided that it was time for him to be the responsible one so that Sheila could stay home with the baby. They had rented a small two-bedroom home in nearby Hooksit and got started on the serious business of living like real adults. Faster, screamed Sheila, as she was sure the baby's head must be poking its way out of the birth canal based on the sudden increase in pain. Arlo went heavy on the gas pedal and stormed off the exit, quickly gliding into the ER entrance. He ran around the side of the van and yanked Sheila's door open. Hey, like my wife's having a baby, Arlo yelled to no one in particular as they struggled in through the double doors. A very professional nurse walked quickly toward them, taking Sheila's arm. Okay, I've got her, said the nurse. Is this your first, honey? Relieved at not having to tell her son that he'd been born in a Budweiser box in the back of his father's van, Sheila pushed through the labored breaths. Yes, it's my, I mean, our first. What's your name, darling? Asked the nurse as she shuttled Sheila toward another set of double doors. It's Sheila. Sheila Teebs, she answered, as baby Teebs made his imminent presence known one more time. Sheila howled in pain as Arlo looked helplessly on. Come on, Sheila, let's go have a baby, said the nurse as the double doors swung closed, leaving Arlo standing in the lobby, staring in fear and wonderment at what was about to happen. Chapter 3 Arlo wheeled Sheila down the hall to the nursery so she could get another look at their new bouncing baby boy. Ten pounds. You did it, babe. 
You made big baby Teebs, said Arlo proudly, looking down upon his son. Cries and gurgles were heard from behind the glass as Sheila took a first look at her son once they'd cleaned him up and placed him in a powder blue blanket in his bassinet. The fruit of my loins, proclaimed Arlo, then quickly corrected himself. Uh, well, the fruit of our loins, technically. He smiled warmly at Sheila, who looked less the worse for wear than Arlo did at the moment. What should we name him? Sheila was thoughtful for a moment and carefully said, I was thinking about naming him after my father. What do you think? Herb? Herbert Teebs? Like, that's way too square for a cool little dude like this. I was thinking something rad like Buzz or Scout, added Arlo. No son of mine is going to be named Buzz or Scout, thank you, said Sheila firmly. Arlo winced a little as he started to come to the realization that he was no longer calling all the shots in his small but growing family. I know. How about Martin? asked Sheila. Arlo mulled the idea and even seemed to mouth the name without saying it. Martin, huh? I like it. It's a good, strong name. Okay, babe, said Arlo. From this point on, our boy shall be known as Martin Teebs. Arlo thrust his hand in the air as if making some official proclamation. As he did, he nearly smacked a woman who was walking down the hall with a dark-haired gentleman. Did you just say Martin? Is that your baby's name? asked the woman as she peered through the glass at little Martin's bassinet. Sheila carefully looked them over for a moment, judging them not to be the type to steal a baby from a hospital nursery. Why, yes we did. We just named him, said Sheila. Why do you ask? Oh, it's just that we're here with our grandfather, said the woman. His name is Martin, too. The man she was with quickly interjected. Well, Martin Jr., to be specific. Righteous, dude. What's he in for? asked Arlo. The man and woman quickly glanced at each other, as if wondering whether to bring down two perfectly happy strangers with the news. The woman spoke first. It's cancer. He's dying. He doesn't have much longer to live. Arlo now wishing he didn't ask, added, Oh, bummer, dude. It's fine. He had a nice long life. He's 94 now, said the man. He lived down near where they first tested that atomic bomb. I guess that's what got him. Sheila and Arlo looked helplessly at the couple, and even the normally talkative Arlo couldn't think of a single thing to say that would make the situation better. After an awkward silence, the man continued, We brought him here for some decent care. He was living in some shithole in New Mexico. What was the name of that place, Roni? Lincoln. Lincoln, New Mexico, replied Roni, as she noticed the lost look upon the new parents' faces. Well, we're so very sorry, said Sheila finally. We're the Teebs, Arlo and Sheila. Arlo extended his hand as Sheila smiled warmly at Roni. The man grabbed Arlo's hand while adding, I'm Tomas, uh, Tom Antrim, and this is my sister Ronita. We call her Roni. As the four greeted each other, a light bulb went off in Tom's head, and before he could stop it, an idea burst from his lips. You know what would be great? Grandpa loves kids. It would really brighten his day if he could meet his little namesake, little Martin. Would you mind bringing him in? It would really brighten his day. Arlo looked questioningly down at Sheila as if waiting for her approval. She smiled and said, sure. All right, said Arlo. Let's get little Martin Teebs to meet his first new friend. Sheila cradled little Martin in her arms as Arlo pushed her down the hall, quickly following Tom and Roni. Chapter 4 
Martin Antrim Jr. wasn't really a junior at all. After all, there was no Martin Antrim Sr. He was called Junior as his father's name was also Martin, but Junior never knew much more about the man than that. Born in Lincoln, New Mexico in 1879, Martin Jr. never met his father, who had disappeared before his birth, never to return. His mother, Rosita Luna, died when Martin was just a toddler. A man named Billy Antrim had known and befriended Junior's father and felt compelled to take young Junior in when news of his mother's death reached him. Living just outside Lincoln County in Magdalena, New Mexico, Billy and his wife Maria provided a stable, loving home for Junior until he reached the age of 17, at which time he determined that he would go back to Lincoln to search for, or wait for, the father he never knew. Junior would spend his years fruitlessly waiting in the dusty old town, hoping against hope that his father, the man his mother adored, would feel compelled to return for his son. Aside from a few fleeting bits of information from Lincoln old-timers, Junior never learned much about the mystery man known as Martin Teebs. When work, or the occasional visit to Billy or Maria called, Junior would leave Lincoln grudgingly, but always return straight away lest he miss the phantom father that he hoped would someday return. As the years wore on, Junior became more and more bitter, not only at his father, but at life in general. He married a local girl named Celsa Gomez, who bore him two perfectly happy children. Celsa died young, at the age of 28, in the great influenza pandemic of 1918, leaving Junior to care for and raise his children on his own. Whenever the topic of his grandparents came up, Junior deferred the kids to Billy and Maria. His children never needed to know he was a bastard, cast aside by a worthless prick that didn't have the decency to marry his mother or have the slightest interest in meeting his son. As his children grew up and had children of their own, Junior settled deeper into Lincoln, now a bustling Old West attraction because of its association with William H. Bonney, better known as Billy the Kid. In Lincoln, nothing changed. It was as if the town had come to a grinding halt when the McSween house burned to the ground during the five-day battle and never got its engine started again. Tourists loved the appeal of the trapped-in-time little village that sheltered not only the kid, but the Regulators, Jesse Evans, Pat Garrett, and other Old West luminaries. Junior, on the other hand, hated it. It was a constant reminder of what he'd lost as a young child and would never have again. If Junior ever suspected that his adopted father, Billy Antrim, was actually Billy the Kid, he never let on for fear of divulging a secret that could impact them all. Everyone knew that Pat Garrett had shot and killed the kid back in 1881 in Fort Sumner anyway. Approaching 90 years old in 1969, Junior had incredibly lived from the closing salvos of the Lincoln County War all the way to see America ensconced in the Vietnam War. His health was failing, but despite urgings from his few friends, he resisted traveling to El Paso or Albuquerque to seek better medical care than was available locally. Finally, in 1973, Junior was rushed to Roswell for a diagnosis after coughing up blood for several days at a time. The diagnosis was grim, lung cancer. The prognosis was worse, six months or less to live. Junior willed himself well enough to leave the hospital and made his way back to his tiny home in Lincoln. Six months came and went, and Junior stubbornly held on to life. At times, the coughing fits were so intense he would pass out, falling to the old wooden floor. Once, his sleeve briefly caught on fire as he fell into the fireplace. 
Luckily, the intense pain quickly brought him back to reality, and he was able to distinguish it with minimal damage. In the fall of 1974, Jr. was visited by his two grandchildren, Tomas and Ronita. They had received letters from neighbors imploring them to come and care for their grandfather. While Jr. was delighted to see them, he firmly resisted any hint that he might ever leave Lincoln alive. While certainly a fool's errand to believe that his long-lost father, who would now be over 130 years old if he somehow managed to cheat time, would still come back for him, Jr. vowed to meet the man in Lincoln or in hell. Day after day, he stared out of his front door, only adorned by an ancient rusty dented metal bucket that his mother had treasured for some odd reason. By early 1975, Junior had become so ill that a traveling physician called his grandkids and told them that their grandfather probably wouldn't last a week, and that they should make arrangements for his soon-to-be demise and burial. Tomas and Ronita returned to Lincoln, and this time, convinced the severely infirm Junior that he would be coming with them back to New Hampshire. Arriving at Catholic Medical Center in July of 1975, Junior was quickly moved into the hospice ward and given palliative care and medication for his pain. Near death, he spent most of his days heavily medicated and asleep. It was just a matter of time. Tomas and Ronita took shifts, staying with him until Friday, July 4th. On that day, both Tomas and Ronita decided to spend the day, or the weekend if need be, to see their crusty but beloved grandfather off to the afterlife. With Junior sleeping, they walked through the hallways to the cafeteria and came across a young couple who had just had their first child. That child's name was Martin Teebs. Chapter 5 Grandpa, look, we have a surprise for you. Ronita's excited words stirred the old man momentarily from his drug-induced stupor. Yeah, Pa, this little guy was just born. He has the same name as you. Meet little Martin, Tomas added. Junior slid himself slightly up on the bed to get a better look at his new namesake. For some reason, the baby's innocence gave him some peace, and for a moment, he felt better, almost alive again. Arlo wheeled Sheila closer to the bed, and she asked, Would you like to hold him? With a warm smile on her face. Junior was barely able to croak out an answer, but managed a half-smiling, half-grimacing, Okay. Sheila gently laid little Martin in old Martin's hands as Arlo smiled. Feeling that somehow they had done a good deed, the Teebs turned back to Tom and Roni to talk more about whatever adults talk about in a room of a dying man. Junior gently touched the baby's head, which elicited a smile from young Martin, and a gurgle, which in some circles could have been a laugh, or perhaps the beginning of a cry. So, Arlo and Sheila Teebs, this is your first baby, huh? Congratulations, said Roni. As the name Teebs floated and vibrated upon Junior's eardrums, he immediately stiffened. The hairs on the back of his neck stood at attention and his entire body went cold. Not cold like he was dying, but cold like he was enraged. Without a doubt, and within a nanosecond, he realized he was holding his own father, Martin Teebs Sr. Without noticing anything developing on the hospital bed, Arlo proudly responded, Yeah, but he's just the first of many, right, babe? Giving Sheila a playful pinch. We're going to create our own little Teebs dynasty. Junior's eyes opened wide with anger, staring at the baby's innocent face as he finally spoke. You, you little son of a bitch. Now you come back, you worthless prick. With the four adults locked in their own conversation, Junior continued. I waited my whole damn life for you to come back, and this is what I get? 
Finally, Junior could contain himself no more, screaming, Screw you, asshole, at little Martin. Startled, the adults turned while Roni rushed to the bedside. Papa, what in God's name are you doing, she demanded. Not done unloading his barrels at the baby, Junior quickly composed himself and pasted on a confused little smile. Uh, oh, nothing, I'm sorry. I just had a shooting pain in my, um, backside. I'm okay now. As if to show he was truly fine, Junior lifted little Martin close to his cheek and put on a huge fake smile, saying, We're fine now. We're fine. The adults, placated for the moment, turned back to their conversation while Junior scanned his faded memory for any last words he had planned for the moment he'd meet his father. In a low, threatening whisper, he continued, I should kill you for what you did to my mother. She loved you, you little bastard. She went to her grave loving you. Junior glanced back to the foursome, but his tone clearly wasn't loud enough to alarm them again. In all those years, you couldn't come back for me? Not even once? Big man, leaving a child to fend for himself. If it weren't for Billy and Maria, I wouldn't even be here right now. Junior scanned Martin's face for some sense of remembrance, as if any of this were sinking into his newborn father's psyche. What he saw, however, was one day old Martin Teebs Sr. purse his lips together crinkle his eyes, and appear to laugh right in the old man's face. Unable to control himself, Junior exploded. You think this is funny? You think my life is a joke? You're the damn joke, you friggin' coward. Stunned, Arlo and Sheila rushed in to grab little Martin from the obviously crazy old man. Arlo got there first, gingerly taking the baby and putting him in Sheila's arms. The great Martin Teeb, screamed Junior, his voice dripping with sarcasm. Unsure of what had just happened, a frantic Roni asked, Oh my God, is he okay? I'm so sorry. With a calm demeanor that his boss sometimes hated, Arlo took control of the room. He's fine, yeah. He shot a look at Junior as they prepared to leave. Dude, chill. Tomas and Roni tried to comfort the old man who was still in the throes of whatever had agitated him and offered to Arlo and Sheila as they quickly wheeled out of the room It's all the medication he's on. He just can't control himself. Arlo pushed Sheila out of the door with a backward wave of his hand, and Junior took his parting shot. Read any good books lately, you little shit? And with that, Martin Antrim Teebs Jr.'s life came to an abrupt end. With rapidly increasing beeps on his EKG machine, his eyes went wide and a maniacal smile spread across his face. With one long beep, his heart stopped. His body went limp, finally having talked to the father he'd spent a lifetime waiting for. Chapter 6 What in the hell was that all about, Arlo? asked Sheila as they quickly wheeled back toward the nursery. Still shocked and angered by what he'd just seen, it took Arlo a few seconds to respond. I know, right? It was like that old dude knew little Martin or something. Weird. Sheila held Martin tightly, whispering to him, That crazy old coot... You never associate with people like that again. Do you understand, baby? Baby Martin gurgled out a smile and a laugh as a nurse lifted him from Sheila's arms and brought him behind the nursery glass. Martin Teebs, proclaimed Arlo proudly, this kid is going to be a mover, a shaker. Hell, he might even become president. This kid is going to light the world on fire. Chapter 7 Waldwick, New Jersey, 2020 The clock on Martin's computer seemed to be stuck on 4.57 for well more than a minute. T 
Keebs surveyed his barren, sterile cubicle, the same one he'd inhabited for the past 17 years. Pencils. Pencils needed sharpening. Keebs calculated that he could sharpen one pencil per minute, and that would take him to closing time. As he reached into his drawer, he felt a tickle in his nose. Burying his index finger deep into the blackness, Teebs pulled out the offender, inspected it, and with some satisfaction, flicked it into the trash can. Two extra sharp pencils later, the clock finally struck 5 p.m. Teebs picked up his briefcase and with nothing in it, tossed his jacket over his shoulder and walked down the long hallway to the elevator. Arriving in the parking garage, his remote chirped while opening the doors of his very sensible sedan and he was soon on his way to his very sensible home in a very sensible neighborhood and his very sensible wife, Lily Teebs. Teebs never aspired to be a middling quality control manager at an ad agency, but like his father, he never really aspired to much in the way of work at all. His passions, if you could call them that, were fantasy football, although he was never much of an athlete, watching TV, and trying to maintain the greenest, thickest lawn on his block. He occupied the exact same job for 17 years, never seeking a promotion and certainly never performing like someone who earned one. It's almost as if his work life was frozen like the caveman they found in an ice somewhere in the north. Teebs was exactly what he never wanted to be, and he was likely to be that for the rest of his career. Lil, I'm home, he announced as he stepped squarely into his middle-class existence. Lily, if she was anywhere, was probably either doing housework or reading one of the many books she often read as an escape from her not entirely unpleasant reality. Oh, hey, Martin. Welcome home, hon. Lily was a cute, petite brunette that Teebs had somehow managed to wow while they both attended Rutgers University. Smart and driven in her younger days, Lily now seemed to have accepted her fate as the wife of a man firmly stuck on slow and not having a way out. She dressed as stylishly as their budget would allow, was a wonderful cook, and kept the house in immaculate order. Teebs leaned in and gave his customary peck on the cheek before asking, What's for dinner? I made your favorite, said Lily, her eyes daring Martin to guess what it was. With no answer forthcoming, she simply replied, Pork chops, to which Teebs smiled devilishly. Oh, and I got your favorite ice cream, chocolate chip mint. It was on sale. Two for four dollars, added Lily. Teebs was a man of value, and that his wife could not only prepare his favorite meal on a budget, but also score him two half gallons of his favorite dessert pleased him immensely. He strode back to Lily, giving her a firm kiss directly on the lips to her shocked surprise. The big man danced down the hallway to change into his old gray sweats and prepare for the feast ahead. Chapter 8 Teeb's stomach made the sound that an old engine might, deprived of oil but still having enough gas to fire. He sat bolt upright in bed and checked the clock. 1.30 a.m. Oh, that was too much ice cream, he moaned to himself. After a visit to the guest room bathroom, he carefully crept down the stairs, popped open the freezer, and pulled out his minty friend for a rematch. Settling down on the warm but comfortable couch, Teebs flicked on the TV remote to see what might be showing at this ungodly hour. After passing through several get-rich-quick, get-thin-quick, and get-fit-quick infomercials, he stumbled upon the opening credits of the movie Young Guns. Never seen this before. How bad could a western with a bunch of kids be, he mused to himself. Carefully licking the ice-cold spoon, Teebs tried to imagine himself in the Old West. 
He assumed food was scarce, so he'd likely be thinner than the version of himself that reflected in the glow of the screen. Envisioning himself as an expert marksman, hunter, lawman, and hero, Teebs allowed himself to be absorbed by the movie until he realized it was about a name he'd heard many times but knew relatively nothing about, Billy the Kid. As the plot unfolded, he found himself entranced by the story of William Bonney, wondering how much of what he was seeing was Hollywood's version of the kid and how much was real. Did the kid really dance down Main Street, brazenly taking the sheriff's own guns and shooting him dead with them? Well, kid had balls, I'll give him that, mused Teebs as he scooped deeper into the final vestiges of his second dessert. In the final climatic shootout in Lincoln, the kid roused his friends for their final stand, and Teebs couldn't help but root for them. There was poor Charlie Bowdry bemoaning his little Mexican wife that he wanted to get back to. Dirty Steve certainly looked the part, covered from head to toe in the flotsam and jetsam of frontier life as he jammed round after round into his rifle. The cultured and refined Doc Skurlock only wished to protect his celestial girlfriend, Yen Sun, from the despotic Lawrence Murphy and a life of sexual servitude. And finally, of course, there was the kid. Cocky and bold in the face of certain death, Teebs was vaguely aware that the kid died young, hence the name The Kid, but hoped against hope that he didn't have to watch his demise on screen at that very moment. He'd come to admire the portrayal of Bonnie in the movie. Fun, gregarious, loyal, and deadly. These were all things that Martin wasn't. Well, except for the loyal part. He found himself rooting for the underdog, fighting against the corruption of Murphy, and hoping somehow that all the regulators could survive if for nothing else, so that Teebs could watch his new friends in the sequel that he imagined must exist. With the escape from the burning McSween house, the kid caught several bullets, but was able to remain on his mount and ride away. Poor Charlie settled his imaginary feud with John Kinney just before taking one to the chest, while Dirty Steve was cut down when Chavez failed to bring him a horse. Doc and Yen were able to escape as well and live happily, or not, ever after. Teebs breathed a deep sigh of relief when what was left of the regulators rode out of sight, but clenched when Billy rode into view once more. Why aren't they shooting at him, he wondered aloud as Billy made a little speech about reaping it before shooting Murphy dead between the eyes and watching Jack Palance give a spectacular fall to his death in the middle of the dusty main street. In the final voiceover, Teebs learned that Billy continued to ride, never leaving New Mexico, and was shot down by Sheriff Pat Garrett in Fort Sumner. Advices say he was unarmed and shot in the dark. Wow, was all Martin could manage as the closing credits rolled. He felt as though he had somehow met a best friend and then lost him all in the space of two hours. Wide awake now, he checked his watch and saw the time, 3.32 a.m. Damn, I'm never going to get any sleep, he admonished and headed to the kitchen to drop the empty ice cream container in the trash, the spoon in the sink, and then headed back to bed. Billy the Kid, he whispered to himself as he lay next to Lily, who was softly snoring, oblivious to Martin's eye-opening experience. Teebs replayed the scenes of Billy fighting injustice over and over in his head as he finally drifted off to a fitful sleep. Chapter 9 the next day dawned clear and bright as Martin struggled to wake with the alarm. Quickly remembering his history lesson from earlier that morning, he made a mental note to check the mall's mega bookstore on the way home to find a book on Billy the Kid and fact-check the movie versus the reality of one William H. Bonney. 
Later that day, having been paroled from another day at the office, Martin pointed his car toward Paramus, New Jersey, or as it was known, Mall Central. Arriving at the bookstore, he browsed nonchalantly for a few minutes before breaking down and asking the clerk for help. Um, where would I find history books on the Old West, inquired Teebs to the smiling 20-something girl behind the counter. Uh, sure, sir. If you'll go two aisles down and make a left, you'll see our history section. You see where all of those guys are standing? she asked. Indeed, there were a bunch of middle-aged men standing in exactly the drop zone that Teebs was headed for. What the hell are they all doing here? he asked aloud before making his way over. Instantly, Teebs realized what had to have happened. With the big sale on ice cream, he wasn't the only middle-class schlub that overindulged last night. All these guys must have awakened to a boiling belly and a date with destiny, too. There were five men poring over books about the kid in the Lincoln County War. One especially overweight guy in a cheap polyester knit short-sleeved shirt gave Teebs a knowing smile and wink, as if to say, Welcome to the club. Slightly horrified and embarrassed that he was even here, Teebs shoehorned his way between the men and casually, too casually to actually be casual, glanced at the numerous book spines. You here to read up on the kid? Mr. Polyester asked with too much gusto. Um, yeah, I just want to see what they have, thanks, said Teebs. Impulsively, he wanted to leave and not be part of these, well, what was the word he was searching for? Losers? That was it. Teebs was mildly revulsed by the thought that he was just like these other new kid fans, seeing nothing in common between them and their boring, shallow lives. He decided to press on while Polyester tapped him on the shoulder. Here, this one is the best. It's by Sergio Bachaca, The True Life of Billy the Kid. Mr. Polly shoved the book into Teebs' hand and the wonderment of it caught him off guard. Here, in 250 pages, were all the answers to the questions he didn't even know yet that he'd have. The cover was adorned with a bright painting of the kid in his infamous crushed hat and crooked smile. He could take the book, right now, go home, and become an expert on Billy the Kid. He felt giddy, powerful, and strangely happy at that moment. So, uh, this is a good one, huh? asked Teebs noncommittally. Good! It's the best, most factual account of Billy's life, bar none. I own three copies myself, offered Polyester. I even got one signed by Serge on one of his book tours in Virginia. The way Polyester said Serge bothered Teebs. It was as if he knew the man and might text him to have a beer before heading home to his dreadful dead-end life, or so Teebs imagined. Well, thanks. I think I'll take your advice and get this one, offered Teebs as he looked to make his exit. One of the men, not smiling, winking, or nodding, stood by the edge of the bookcase slowly pulling back book after book with a dismissive look. Teebs caught his eye for a second and saw the look of disapproval at his choice of reading material. With sharp features and a permanently dissatisfied look on his face, the stranger sniffed at Teebs and turned away, pulling an old flip foam from his corduroy pants as if he might have missed a call. Teebs made a hasty retreat to the cashier, paid for his book, and looked for his car among the throngs of other sensible sedans in the mall parking lot. Finding it, he collapsed into the front seat and removed the book from its bag, tempted to read it right then and right there. No, not yet, Teebs told himself, as if not wanting to rush into sex with a woman he just met. Let's wait until tonight when you and I have more time.
He began to slip the book back into the bag, but at the last moment decided to prop it up with Billy facing the windshield. His little two-person carpool complete, Teebs navigated the swollen parking lot and made his way back home. Chapter 10 Carl Farber stood mutely near the edge of the bookcase in the Paramus Mall's Uber bookstore. Unlike the rest of those he judged losers, he hadn't stayed up all night watching Young Guns. Instead, Farber was doing market research. How many middle-aged men would show up to buy Billy the Kid books upon seeing a movie about him on the big or little screen? Farber was interested because he had his own book on the kid in the works and wanted to understand the economy of it all. While he didn't have a publisher interested, he had a unique viewpoint on a subject that he was sure would generate publishing riches. As men came and went in the early evening hours, one, in particular, caught his eye. A big fat man in a polyester short-sleeved shirt seemed to have something to say to all the Billy files in the history section. He regaled them with his favorite book by Sergio Bachaca and proclaimed it the best, most accurate history of the life of the boy bandit. More than once, under his breath, Farber had to hold back a bullshit or fuck off toward the man so as not to disturb his publishing petri dish. When a tall man came ambling in, Farber picked up right away that this guy was lost and a complete novice when it came to Bonnie. The tall man looked out of place among the other newbies and was quickly approached by Mr. Polyester, who of course pushed Pajaka's book on him. Farber seethed at the misinformation that was being peddled to this particular group of losers, but he relished in the idea that soon he'd set things straight, once and for all. The big man said something to Polly and with what looked like a thank you began to leave. For a moment, the two locked eyes and Farber narrowed his face to show his displeasure about the man's choice of books. The big man looked quizzically at him for a moment before pressing by to get to the cashier. Farber watched him until he was out of sight, figuring that he'd have one more easy mark when his sure-to-be bestseller finally hit shelves later that year. As the rest of the men flipped through the books that Farber knew were full of lies, he began seeing dollar signs on top of each of their stupid, ignorant heads. Farber smiled a satisfied smile and decided to leave, heading back to his barren one-room apartment. If he remembered correctly, he still had a microwave TV dinner with only a little freezer burn to boot. Chapter 11 Martin, did you order more stuff from Amazon? shouted Lily Teebs on a sunny Saturday morning. Aroused from his morning routine of drinking a gallon or so of coffee, Martin stirred and walked toward the front door. Oh, hey! They're here already, said Martin with a satisfied smile. Let me guess, more Billy the Kid books, right? demanded Lily. In the two months since purchasing Bachaka's book at the mall, Teebs had become ravenous in his desire to learn everything he could about Billy, the Regulators, and the Lincoln County War. Night after night, and a few times during his numerous slow times at work, he scoured the internet for more books on the kid ordering whatever he could find to satisfy his new urge for knowledge. Boxes made regular appearances on the Teebs' neat and tidy porch as Martin stayed up late into the night reading facts, tales, and rumors about a time he only wished he could somehow visit. That night watching Young Guns had somehow changed Teebs, where before he only wanted to make it through the day so he could make it through the week so he could make it to the weekend, now he relished each day. He lived out the tumultuous time of the Lincoln County War in his mind. He now scoffed at young guns as being inauthentic and riddled with errors and looked down his nose at anyone 
who suggested that the kid killed the 21 men that legend had credited him with. In short, he'd become a Billy the Kid snob, and Teebs relished in it. At least now he belonged to something, had passion for something. He could bore people to tears at parties, if he and Lily ever even attended a party, that is, with arcane facts about the Fritz insurance policy or the amount of inventory Tunstall had ordered to open his store. Lily sensed a change in him as well. He was more motivated, at least as it pertained to his new obsession. During several of their dinnertime conversations, he floated the idea of a romantic trip out west that Lily knew was code for New Mexico. She was firmly not in the Billy the Kid camp and had zero interest in a murderer of lawmen that had died almost 140 years ago. Still, she at least saw some life in Martin's eyes, a light that hadn't been there for years, and from that she drew some comfort. Can we afford all these books, Martin, she demanded. I mean, they're all about the exact same thing. How many of them do you need to read? Same thing, asked Teebs, incredulous that Lily hadn't been paying attention for the past two months. Every one of these books lays out key information on the story of the kid. I want to know it all, Lil, not just that BS that Hollywood feeds you. Knowing she wouldn't make any progress in Martin's state of mind, she simply handed him the box with a soft hmph and strode inside. Teebs made his way to the kitchen to carve open the package and see what historical riches lay inside. Satisfied that he had enough study material for the week, he picked up a volume about the Lincoln County War and thumbed through it while he poured another cup of coffee down his waiting throat. Out of the corner of his eye, he caught Lily in her jogging outfit, about to go for a run. Hey, uh, Lil, Teebs began. I've really been thinking about that vacation we talked about. How about we go to Rosario's for dinner tonight and plan something? While dinner and a glass of wine at Rosario's sounded wonderful to Lily, a debate on visiting some dusty old town in the middle of New Mexico did not. Lily carefully considered the offer before responding, Listen, Martin, with your newfound excitement about Billy the Kid, you've probably spent more on books in the last two months than our vacation would cost. I just don't think that we should spend the money. We're not getting any younger, and you're not making any more money than you have been. As soon as she said it, Lily regretted it. Martin was a good man, a decent husband and a good provider. While her life hadn't exactly turned out as intended, Lily didn't want to hurt the man she loved and planned to spend the rest of her life with. Martin had winced visibly upon hearing her final shot, and she wanted to make up for it quickly. I'm sorry, honey. I didn't mean that. I know they don't appreciate you the way that they should down at the office. You've given them 17 years of your life in the same job, and the best they could manage was a few cost-of-living raises. Someday they'll see what they have and reward you. Just you wait and see, my sweet husband, Lily gushed at Teebs. Martin couldn't stay mad and secretly wanted Lily to leave so he could start picking apart the army beef contracts awarded to the House of Murphy. So he simply replied, Thanks, babe. Have a great run. Let me know about Rosario's when you get back. Lily smiled at the quick fix and bounded out the door as Teebs dug in for as much reading as he could get done before it was time to fertilize his lawn. Chapter 12 What do you think, Marty? asked Colin. Got anything for the contest? It was Monday morning, and while Teebs would rather be home studying up on the kid, he had bills to pay, and to Lily's point, he had been spending a lot more money recently than he was used to. Work seemed like the logical place to be. The contest that Colin McGlinchey was speaking of was the Parmalove Brothers Ad Agency's safety slogan affair. Generally, while working in an ad agency isn't as dangerous as, say, crab fishing in Alaska, 
or doing steelwork on skyscrapers without a safety belt, it still had his pitfalls. When old Alice Green slipped and fell down a flight of stairs after some young gun had spilled pickle juice, the agency was forced to pick up the tab for her convalescence. Just weeks later, Greg Trebenlove had been hit by the company's delivery van after he darted out of the stairwell in the parking garage. While the closed-circuit cameras captured him in a Spider-Man-like pose trying to swing in front of the van, the footage was not conclusive enough to have him admitted to the psych ward, and again, the company had to foot the bill. To counteract these injury expenses, the risk management department decided a little contest was in order and offered two round-trip tickets to anywhere in the continental U.S., coach, of course, to anyone that could come up with a new slogan for their safety campaign. Eh, not yet, Colin. I'd sure like to win those tickets and take Lil on a trip, though. What have you got? asked Teebs to his one friend in the office. Uh, okay, okay, replied Colin impatiently. Check this out. A safe workplace is a happy workplace. Huh? Huh? What do you think, Marty? Should I start working on my tan? Teebs was amused by the young man, but felt a sudden urge to yawn. Not wanting to insult him, he attempted to stifle it while a huge belch permeated from his stomach instead. Jeez, I get it, said a disappointed Colin. It's not great, but I'm not one of these ad guys. Why don't we just ask them to do it? We're an ad agency, for God's sake. Trying to calm Colin's sudden anger, Teebs offered, Hey, it's not bad at all, Colin. I just had a big lunch, you know. I bought some leftover veal scallopini from Rosario's. You know how much they load up on the garlic. You really think it's okay, Marty? Asked Colin, hopefully. Hey, it's better than mine. I can't even come up with anything. I guess that's why I'm stuck here in quality control rather than upstairs with the big boys, lamented a suddenly sad Teebs. Colin walked off, satisfied that his submission might have a chance to win. Teebs stared at a blank computer screen with zero ideas and even less motivation. He scanned his barren desk for ideas and spied his calculator. He had a brief flash of inspiration and quickly typed onto his screen, sales plus safety equals success. Satisfied that he could do no better, he emailed it to risk management and thought no more about it for the rest of the day. Judging was to take place on Wednesday, and Martin held out slim hope that his slogan would better those of the guys upstairs who made in the high six figures and still had two martini lunches. Amazingly, Wednesday arrived and Teebs received an inter-office call from the head of risk management. Hey, Martin Teebs, this is Dana Spilcher of Risk Management. You submitted a slogan for our contest, right? Came the cheery voice on the other end of the phone. Teebs was wary, as if Colin might be putting him on, but he played along. Uh, yes, I did. Well, we loved it, Martin, exploded Spilcher. It's exactly right. We have to keep making sales to be successful. But if we're not safe, all that profit is going to go right down the drain. This is incredible, Martin. You are our winner. Teebs was momentarily stunned, but recovered enough to thank the woman for her kind words. He nearly hung up the phone before she offered, Oh, we'll put your tickets in the inter-office mail. Enjoy your trip. Any idea where you might go, Martin? Teebs' mind was already drifting toward the rough-and-tumble mountains and deserts of New Mexico, as he heard himself say, I've got an idea or two, but I'll need to talk it over with my wife. He spent the rest of the day staring at online pictures of Billy the Kid Country, and went so far as to put a refundable deposit on a casita at Lincoln's premier bed and breakfast, Juan Patron's place. Now, if he could only talk Lily into it. Chapter 13 The stark bright desert sun shone harshly through the rental car's windshield. This was sun. Real sun. 
Not like New Jersey sun. Lily's faux diamond-encrusted bargain store sunglasses couldn't keep up, and that began to irritate her. Did you turn up the air conditioner, Martin? I'm roasting over here, she asked, although plainly aware that he had. Their tiny four-cylinder Econo rentals simply didn't have enough power to move them down Interstate 25 South at 80 miles per hour and keep up with enough cool air. How hot is it outside anyway, she added in Martin's general direction, although she wasn't sure he was even paying attention. From the moment the pilot announced they were on final approach to the Albuquerque International Sunport, with Martin craning his neck to see the promised land, to this very instant, he'd been wearing a pleasant little half-smile that Lily might have seen on someone whose IQ might match the total of a high-scoring football game. While she was satisfied that her husband was happy, she'd come to New Mexico under false pretenses, knowing that Martin's portrayal of their trip as a romantic little getaway with just a smattering of Billy the Kid, was far from her current truth. For better or for worse, she remembered, thinking just before she gave in and agreed to the week-long getaway to one of the country's most remote and poor states. The dash thermometer says 96 degrees, Lil, chirped Martin happily, but you know those things are always set a little high. He stared contentedly over the landscape as signs for towns like Los Lunas, Belen, and Socorro rolled by. Sensing Lily's growing frustration, along with her perspiration, he offered, But you know, it's really a dry heat out here. Lily glanced sideways at Martin, but decided she wouldn't ruin their trip before it really got started. Finally, at the exit for San Antonio, New Mexico, they escaped the high-speed ribbon of asphalt and were firmly pointed toward Lincoln. Won't be long now, my dear, he said, as Lily cast him a sideways glance that could have meant, Who cares? Or perhaps, You're crazy. The miles rolled on as the sun held high in the western sky. Passing through a huge valley, Martin took note that they were close to the Trinity site, which stood as a memorial to the USA's first atomic bomb test in 1945. That must have been something, he mused, to be right here when they detonated an atomic bomb on American soil. I heard it was so top secret they didn't even tell any of the locals what they were doing. I'm sure they couldn't just set off an atomic bomb without allowing people to take precautions, Martin, shot back Lily. I don't know, Lil. For years after, people had all sorts of strange illnesses. At least, that's what I read, assured Martin. Carrizozo was rolled through just barely above the speed limit, and both Martin and Lily were amazed at the otherworldly look of the Valley of Fires. Far from New Jersey, Lily decided at some point to relax and just let their vacation happen, which immediately brightened her mood and her view of her husband. After taking note that Capitan was the burial site of Smokey the Bear, they stopped to gas up at the local station. Hey, Lil, would you mind driving? I want to take some pictures as we drive into Lincoln, Martin asked. Sure, hun. How much further is it? She asked. Lily pondered saying no since she'd heard about how crazy drivers can be out in the middle of nowhere, but figured this was their first and last trip to New Mexico so she could at least indulge Martin in his quest to find Billy the Kid. Pleasantly surprised, Martin reported they had only 10 miles to go before reaching Nirvana, and he didn't plan to miss a minute of it. Slipping into the passenger seat, he grabbed the cell phone to make sure that it was well-charged for the onslaught of pictures he planned to take. They carefully rolled out of the station, and Lily pointed the car east, towards Lincoln, New Mexico. Chapter 14 The bland green road sign simply said Lincoln on it as Martin craned his neck toward the driver's side of the car attempting to see anything except rocks, shrubs, and desert around the rock escarpment. 
As they approached the town, they were met by a small scattering of buildings, and then almost as if the gates of heaven had been opened, Martin was face to face with the house, the old Murphy Dolan store that served as the kid's jail and from where he shot his way to infamy, killing both of his guards just months before being shot and killed himself by Pat Garrett and Fort Sumner. Martin's voice rose an octave or two at the sight. Oh my God, there it is, Lil. The courthouse, the Murphy Dolan store, right there. Right there is where the kid killed that bully Ollinger with Ollinger's own shotgun. With a few scattered tourists walking along the edge of the roadway, Lily acknowledged his find with an audible, hmm, but continued to focus on the road. Martin's head was on a swivel as they drove by the Tunstall store, Wortley Hotel, and the famous Torreon, all sites Martin had seen a hundred, a thousand times online, but was now in the very presence of. Oh, this is incredible. I can't believe that 140 years ago there was a real war here, with real men fighting and dying. I can't believe I'm... Martin quickly thought better and corrected himself. I mean, we're here, Lily. As the car slowly meandered along Lincoln's only street, they neared the east edge of town before the sign for Juan Patron's place came into view. This is it, I guess, said Lily as the car slowed and glided to a stop in the crunchy gravel parking lot. Looks pretty nice, huh, Martin? Almost before the car stopped, Teebs jumped out of the passenger seat so he could walk the same ground that the kid did. While not ignoring Lily, he also didn't answer her, wanting to remember this moment, his first time in Lincoln, forever. This is God's country, huh, Lil? Just look at this. He spoke with tones usually reserved for church service. Yeah, it's nice. It's very... Lily paused to put the right effect on her voice so as not to bring Martin crashing to earth. Peaceful. Yeah, it's peaceful. Martin wandered toward the main street looking westward back into the heart of Lincoln. While he didn't intend for anyone to hear him, he clearly spoke loud enough to give Lily some alarm. I'm here, kid. I can't believe it. I'm here, announced Martin to the ghost of a boy long since gone. Wide-eyed with wonder, he spun 360 degrees around as if he had somehow magically been transported to a home that he never knew he missed. This trip's not going to be all about Billy the Kid, is it, Martin? Lily questioned. We're going to do things, right? Like actual things together, like we planned? Quickly snapping back from wherever the town had transported him, he made a glove save. Oh, of course, Lil. This is just a nice, quiet place for us to get away. See? he said, holding out his cell phone. I don't even get a signal on my phone here. It's just you and I. No distractions. It's going to be great. I promise. To cement his recovery, Martin pulled Lily in tight for a genuine hug, a move which surprised her at first and gave her some hope that the trip might rekindle their waning love life. Already not great, it had positively fallen off the charts when Martin's obsession with Billy the Kid took hold. He spent night after night reading into the wee hours of the morning, and Lily was left to find her own means of satisfaction in an increasingly platonic relationship. Okay, well, let's check in, chirped Lily, happily slipping her purse over Martin's shoulder, as well as giving him the task of getting both of their luggage. Struggling with the trunk of the car and Lily's oversized roller bag, he noticed his well-read copy of Pachaka's book sliding out of his carry-on bag. Wouldn't want you to go missing, Martin said affectionately to the book, that he regarded as the singular authoritative biography of the kid. He slipped the book gently back into his bag and joined Lily on the porch. 
Chapter 15 Hey there, you must be the Teebs, said a buxom woman in yoga pants, an almost see-through white tank top, and a cowboy hat. Welcome to Juan Patron's house. Darlene Jones and her husband Dallas were the overly friendly proprietors of the historic building, running it as a bed and breakfast while Dallas pursued his dreams of being a famous actor, which was no small feat to accomplish living in Lincoln, New Mexico, and Darlene seemed to delight in getting to know her guests as well as possible. Assuming that the women should take the lead in introductions, Lily chimed in, Hi, uh, yes, Martin and Lily Teebs, nice to meet you. Just then a cowboy, or the best approximation of a cowboy that he could put together, came bounding out of the front door. All pecks and a spectacular white smile, Dallas Jones was shot in cowboy boots, skin-tight jeans, and a checked short sleeve shirt that was at least one size too small for him. While he had the decency to button at least one of the shirt's fasteners, it turned out it was the bottom one, leaving his heaving chest and abs on display for all of Lincoln to see. When he finally spoke, it was with the booming voice of a man who'd been on too many auditions and not landed many roles. Welcome to Lincoln, and welcome to the center of the Lincoln County War, he proudly announced. Dallas wrapped his arm behind Lily's neck while Martin stared wide-eyed at the spectacle. Not to be outdone, Darlene slipped her arm around Martin's waist and began to guide him toward the front door. Um, let me get the bags, Darlene, he began, but Darlene quickly interjected. Come on in, silly. Dallas will get those for you later. Her firm grasp on his waist pushed him toward the entrance, and just as they reached the door, she gave him a firm slap on the rump and said, We're going to have a good time with y'all. Lily turned with a frightened look, only to see Martin in similar circumstances as the two hosts guided their new guest deeper and deeper into their home, and for a trip they'd hopefully remember forever. Chapter 16 Finally arriving in their casita, Lily slammed the door and barked, What was that? Did you see what he did to me, Martin? Not wanting to jeopardize his trip by acknowledging their apparently sex-crazed hosts, Martin gave the best answer he could. It's not like that, Lil. People are just friendlier out here. That's all. You're used to New Jersey where no one even talks to each other. Friendlier? Lily shot back. I'm not sure if that guy had a can of Red Bull in his pocket or if he was just happy to see me. Realizing he was losing his grip on the situation, Martin pulled Lily in tight and calmed her as best he could. Don't worry, Lil. We've got this whole casita to ourselves. It's like our own little love nest. This is going to be perfect. I promise. Well... Okay, then, if you're sure, Lily calmed a bit at Martin's promise. They made short work of unpacking in the cute and cozy casita, remembering Dallas's instructions to return to the main house at 5 p.m. for a delicious dinner with their other guests. Just before 5, they made their way across the courtyard to enjoy something called green chili enchiladas that Darlene told them would be the best they'd ever have in New Mexico. Chapter 17 with a full belly, Martin stepped onto the front porch of Patron's with Lily not far behind. You sure don't get Mexican food like that in New Jersey, huh, Lil? said Martin while adjusting his belt open a notch. Dressed like an out-of-place tourist, he wore running shoes, a pair of what appeared to be mom jeans, and a brightly colored nylon shirt that had a blend of cats and fireworks for some strange reason festooned all around it. Lily, more calm from the three glasses of wine she had had with dinner, replied, I'm stuffed, but that was really good. The town, before sunset, beckoned Teebs to go exploring, as all he'd seen so far were the sights on the way in, the inside of his casita, and a random flash of Darlene's boobs when she seemed to purposely drop a fork in front of him while serving dinner. 
He was chomping at the bit to see more of the town he'd flown across the country to pay homage at. You sure you won't come for a walk with me? He inquired of Lily. No, I'm beat. You go. That was a long flight and a long drive. I think I'll stay here and take a bath, maybe read up on some things to do tomorrow, giving Martin the assent to take on Lincoln on his own. Giving Lily an enchilada-laced peck on the cheek, he bade her farewell and set off on an adventure that had his heart pounding. Just as he stepped off the porch, Lily teased, Have fun, and don't go getting into any gunfights. Forming his thumb and forefinger into a pistol, he waved it over his head and winked back at her as he walked out of sight. Lincoln, New Mexico is a roughly one-mile-long strip of asphalt, with historic buildings and museums lining both sides of the street. Except for the semi-truck sometimes barreling through town, it's a quiet little place where one can get lost in their thoughts and dreams. In the early evening light, Martin saw no one else out walking. Pulling a flyer he'd picked up in the main house from his pocket, he quickly realized that all of the museums and monument buildings were closed for the day. With a sigh, he figured he'd get to walk to all of the historic sites in peace and quiet while returning tomorrow to continue his research. What had been a clear and warm night just seconds ago quickly changed as a fog or mist of sorts seemed to settle on the main street. Teebs looked puzzled at the sudden onset of weather, but forged on. At some points it was so thick he couldn't see his shoes, and he wound up veering into the road like a drunken sailor. The sharp blast of a semi-horn coming directly from behind him blew him from the road where he fell into a ditch. Rising to check his body parts over, he found nothing broken or torn, and brushed the dirt from his pants. Suddenly, Teebs froze in his tracks, for what was a quiet, almost vacant town a moment ago had dramatically come to life in the few seconds it took him to climb out of the ditch. The fog now gone, he looked down to see Lincoln's main street covered in dirt. There seemed to be more buildings now, and men, women, and children and horses scurried about as if life had been this way for a hundred years. With his mind unable to comprehend what had happened, he approached the woman dressed in a vivid green dress of the style that would have been worn in the 19th century and asked, "'Excuse me, miss?' Is this some kind of street theater? The woman took one look at Teeb's outfit and recoiled in fear, perhaps even horror. She rushed off the street as Teebs yelled after her, What time did this start? Now clearly out of his element and in a state of extreme confusion, Teebs walked into the street to find out just what the heck was going on. Passersby gave him queer looks as if he was the one out of place and not them with their clothes, hairstyle, guns, and assorted other Old West paraphernalia. Looking across the street, he spied the Tunstall store that he'd seen on the way in. For some reason, it looked familiar, but different. His mind locked onto the few possibilities that it could. First, he could have happened into the middle of some old Lincoln Days festival and not known about it. That didn't make sense to him because of the ease with which he booked a room and the general vacancy of the town just a few minutes ago. Second, he might have received a head injury in his fall in the ditch and this could all be a vivid dream. Teebs pinched himself hard and let loose an ow before he could stop himself. Still assuming it might be a dream, he slapped himself in the face as if to brace himself. The slap, hurting more than the pinch, convinced him that he was indeed awake. His final thought was that somehow this whole charade might even be real, a thought which he quickly discarded for fear he might be right. Not knowing his next move, he walked toward the Tunstall store, the only building he recognized from his books. 
What do you need more cartridges for, Chavez? You can't hit the broadside of a barn with the ones you have, said a slender, blonde-haired man to one of the men on the porch. I took out Raleigh Brogan's eye at fifty paces with my eyes closed, so I don't know what the hell you're talking about anyway, Skurlock, replied the solid, squat, Hispanic man. Among general chatter from the four men who seemed to be friends, Teebs heard the names French and Bowdry, and it occurred to him that if he was indeed dreaming, this was one hell of an accurate dream. He was standing nearly face-to-face with a group of the famous Lincoln County regulators. As people milled about and passed him, Martin slowly and carefully shuffled toward the porch of the store. Somewhere from behind a gate, a big old bulldog barked at him. The dog's barking caught the ear and eye of Doc, who finally noticed the big man in the strange clothes. Teebs! shouted Skurlock to Martin, who was clearly amazed that someone knew his name. How have you been, you son of a bitch? Martin was frozen in his steps as Doc, Charlie, Jim, and Chavez all walked toward him with smiles on their tanned faces. Uh, how do you guys know my name? Did the folks up at Juan Patron's place put you up to this? Stammered Teebs, now beginning to panic that he might be losing his grip on reality. Before Doc could answer, Chavez stated emphatically, Juan, you ain't got no place in this fight. Doc stepped closer and put his hand on the big man's shoulders. What's wrong, Teebs? You got the consumption or something? He deadpanned as the rest of the regulators howled in laughter. Not knowing how far this game might go, Teebs carefully considered his next words. Is this some kind of fair or play or something? I'm sorry, guys. I'm just a little off balance with all of this. French rolled his dark eyes and retreated to the Tunstall store, mumbling something about needing to fetch Billy. Before any of the men in front of him could answer, his name was shrieked by a decidedly female voice coming in hard and fast from between the two buildings behind him. Martine, Martine, you've come back, cried the deliriously happy and very pretty woman. Rosita Luna was known as the Belle of Lincoln, clearly the most beautiful woman in the county. She was quartered by all manners of rogues, vagabonds, sinners, and honest men. She, however, only had eyes for one man, the one man now firmly in her clutches. Oh, mi amor, they told me you would never come back, but I knew in my heart you would, said Rosita as she smothered Teebs with hugs and kisses. Chavez piped in, don't keep that woman waiting no more, Teebs, because she's been waiting a long time, as the regulators broke down in laughter again. Teebs looked frantically around for an escape hatch from this reality. He half expected Lily to be standing by the roadside laughing at him for believing in this silly fantasy. He scanned to the east and west, hoping that maybe another semi-truck would barrel down on him and wipe this memory from his mind. All he wanted in that moment was to walk back to Patron's and climb into bed so he could sleep this off. Rosita latched her arms around Teebs' neck and pressed her body close to his. As much as he worried Lily might somehow show up and believe he was cheating on her, it wasn't an entirely unpleasant experience. As the regulators kept up the small talk, Rosita tugged at his arm. Come, Mia Moore, those bastardos from Dolan will make trouble if they see us. Come. Just as Teebs was allowing himself to be led off the street, a bellowing voice of a young man cut through the din. Teebsy, you old son of a bitch, where you been? Had God himself beamed down from heaven with a corned beef and cabbage sandwich for his dinner, Teebs could not have been more surprised than to find himself standing face to face with the boy he studied for months. The face that was so familiar, it could not be mistaken, and with an air of fun and frivolity that all the history books said belonged to him. Martin Teebs stood arm in arm with his apparent love interest, Rosita Luna, as he met for the first time ever, 
William H. Bonney, alias Billy the Kid. Chapter 18 For most people, coming face-to-face with a legend is a once-in-a-lifetime thing. For Teebs, it was multiplied by a factor of 140 years from the time he started his day in New Jersey to the way it was finishing in New Mexico. He stared at the young man who looked almost exactly like the famous tintype. The boy couldn't have been more than five foot seven and maybe weighed 135 pounds soaking wet. He had sharp eyes and a crooked little smile which seemed to be on display at almost all times. His clothes were nothing special and it appeared that he and the rest of the regulators had been out working as they were all appropriately pasted in dust and grime. The kid wore a large sombrero that he tilted back to get a better look at the big man. Damn, Teebsy, you're a sight for sore eyes. We was wondering when you was going to make it back. Billy's friendly, laconic tone drew Teebs in. The big man leaned in as if looking at a museum display, still not believing what his eyes were showing him. Billy? Billy the kid? he asked incredulously. <laughs> Billy will do just fine around here, buddy, said Billy as he looked the big man up and down. What in the hell are you wearing, Teebsy? I ain't never seen no kit like that before. Rosita, tired of Martin talking shop with his buddies, urged him to come home so she could cook him a proper dinner. Between this beautiful woman begging him to come home with her, standing before the outlaw legend Billy the Kid, and the rest of the regulators laughing at his Reeboks, Martin's world was spinning out of control. His heart was beating rapidly and he was sweating profusely. The sights, sounds, and smells of the town were making him woozy. He feared if he didn't get out of here soon, he'd pass out. He finally found the words to try to pull his world back together. Hey guys, this has been fun and all, but my wife's going to be waiting for me and I need to get going, he stated as firmly as he dared. Ice water ran through Rosita's veins as she snapped. Your wife? And slapped Teebs as hard as he'd ever been hit right across the face. French laughed so hard that snot shot from his nose and Chavez hit the ground laughing and holding his belly to keep from crying. Damn, you sure got her dander up. When the hell did you get a wife, Teebs? asked Billy, his smile widening and his eyes alight. All Martin could do besides watch Rosita storm off was to rub his cheek and stammer out a few syllables that had no chance of forming an actual word. Billy grabbed him by the shoulder and led him back to the store, asking, Where are you staying? Because you sure ain't staying with Rosita tonight. Billy laughed heartily at his own joke and his friend's misfortune. Um, Juan Patron's place? Teebs replied weakly, pointing up the street. Come on, amigo. I'll walk with you, said the young outlaw. Things are getting bad out here with those Dolan boys after they killed John. You'd think we kill one of their bosses the way they's acting. Billy's cool confidence inspired Teebs to start shuffling his feet back towards what he hoped was a wake-up call from this all-too-realistic dream. As they made their way along the street, Teebs had to ask the question he'd been dreading. Option four. Hey, Billy... Am I dead or something? How did I get here? He said finally, expecting the worst, but hoping for the best. Man, the only ones who are going to be dead are Dolan's boys. Maybe Dolan himself. You ain't dead, Teepsy. Not yet, anyway, came the reply. As the two men approached a very different Patron house than Teebs remembered, he turned again to the young man. Thanks for walking me, Billy. I appreciate it. I need to get some sleep or... Maybe have a stiff drink or two. Sounds good, my friend. Oh, and hey, Teebs, don't go tell Rosita about your wife no more, laughed Billy, as he turned back toward the store. Remembering he had something important to tell his friend, Billy quickly turned back. Hey, 
Don't come out tomorrow morning unless you're carrying this, he said as he fished around inside his waistband and produced one of Sam Colt's finest revolvers. The 1873 bird's head shone magnificently in the setting sun, loaded with five rounds and a spent shell under the hammer. Teebs looked fascinatingly at the shiny gun for a moment before snapping to his senses. What? No way, my wife would kill me if she sees me with that. Billy laughed heartily as he stuck the gun back in his waist. Okay, lover boy, suit yourself. But I told you, stop talking about your wife lest you want to get another one across the face. He laughed again as he slapped the air near Martin's face and walked into the night. Teebs staggered into the gloaming toward what he hoped was the Patron house, but veered into the road. As a horse quickly galloped by him on the right, the rider yelled, Get out of the way, you idiot, and rode off into the night. The close call knocked Teebs off the road into the grass, and when he came to, it was sunset in Lincoln on March 31, 2020, and the town had been completely restored to what he'd left after dinner. Swallowing hard and shaking more dust from his clothes, he made his way past his rental car in the driveway to the casita, where Lily must surely be waiting. Chapter 19 Carl Farber stood firmly in front of his 11th grade U.S. history class. While Farber dreamed of fame and fortune as a youth, his studies at Bergen Community College didn't portend a future filled with private jets, bottle service, or sexy supermodels. This, this classroom filled with entitled little snots who drove cars that probably cost as much as a house was what he was left with. That thought burned in Farber as he taught the day's lesson on his most passionate subject, the Lincoln County War. And so was born the infamous Lincoln County War, students. A war between merchants and ranchers, driven by the powers of the Santa Fe Ring, proclaimed Farber. Almost no one heard him because those that were awake had their noses buried in ever more expensive cell phones and tablets. The school discouraged usage of phones, but didn't expressly forbid it, so Farber was left almost teaching for his own benefit. Gritting his teeth, he pressed on. Can anyone tell me what infamous figure was born out of said war? One student lifted his head out of his screen and couldn't help but take the bait. Your mother, he inquired. The class exploded in laughter and Farber turned red with anger, unsure of how long he'd spend in jail for kicking the insolent little shit's ass. No, barked Farber at the suddenly alive class. Don't you people remember anything? The class clown would never survive as a fish, eagerly taking the bait again. I remember your mother from last night, as the class howled in laughter a second time. Farber's fist instinctively tightened and his jaw went tight, but going to jail today would ruin his plans tomorrow. Out of the Lincoln County War, he announced, snapping off each word as if it were formally connected, came the notorious gunslinging punk William H. Bonney. You might remember him as Billy the Kid. The combination of laughter, Farber's red face, and some good old gunplay roused the video game generation kids as someone from the back of the room yelled, Billy the Kid, he was so cool, to which others in the class murmured their assent. Cool, said the disbelieving Farber. You think killing three lawmen in cold blood is cool? The class had seen their history teacher go off on tangents before and knew it was time to shut up and pretend to listen. Not a sound cut the silence as Farber continued. You think making a living stealing horses and cattle is cool? Still, the class sat back, with no one daring to interject. Farber's anger at the idea of the kid, as well as his class, which he judged to be no better than Bonnie, infuriated him. 
You think sending your own friends to die is cool? He screamed into the void of 25 pimply-faced suburban teens. Finally, a student in the front row spoke up. Okay, we get it, Mr. Farber. Chill, dude. Farber paced back and forth in front of the class as if a lion, deciding which one of them to eat first. Oh, I'll chill all right, he said directly into the kid's face. Tomorrow I leave for Lincoln, New Mexico, where I'll put the final touches on my book about the real Billy the Kid. When I'm done, the world will never look at that abject coward as a... And here, Farber deftly pulled out the air quotes, hero again. Satisfied by their silence that he'd made his point, Farber strode back toward his desk, muttering the word cool to himself while shaking his head in disgust. A pin drop could have been heard until a lone voice from the back of the room broke the silence. Uh, Mr. Farber, you know who's still going to think Billy the Kid is cool no matter what your book says? Intrigued, Farber slowly turned toward the back of the room and straightened up as if he might gain some valuable information. Who? he said curiously. Your mother, came the reply, as the class was beside itself with laughter. As if on cue, the bell rang and the kids quickly filed out, leaving a smoldering Farber in their wake. Chapter 20 In the dreary light of his home's fluorescent bulbs, Farber packed his bag for his early morning flight to New Mexico. Among his jeans, assorted t-shirts, socks, and underwear, he had decided to bring some 1878 period clothing with him, left over from an Old West reenactors group that he was kicked out of for reasons he didn't like to discuss. Farber figured that his first trip to Lincoln should be a memorable one, and looking like a local might make him feel like one. He wasn't completely sure that the few residents that still resided in town dressed as if they were still in the Lincoln County War, but he mused that there was nothing else for the town was famous for, so they surely must, at least to keep tourists coming to spend their hard-earned dollars. Gathering up his belongings, he began to make a list to assure he hadn't left anything behind. Clothes, check. Money, check. ID, check. What else am I forgetting? He asked of himself. Aha, plane ticket. I'm not going anywhere without this. Farber looked around the room to make sure he didn't overlook some key item when his eyes fixated on a neat stack of papers on his tiny desk. Picking them up and making sure they were in perfect order, he looked upon the manuscript as if it were a lover. Wouldn't want to forget you, my precious. Upon the cover page in big bold letters was the title, Billy the Kid, the Coward of Lincoln County. Farber caressed the pages with a feel he imagined a woman would like. Just a few more days of research and I'll be done. He paused before continuing. And then, Mr. Bonnie, the world will know what a sniveling little pissant you really were. He carefully placed the manuscript into a protective folder and laid it gently on top of his clothes. Just as he was about to zip the bag shut, he saw one more thing to pack. He reached over to a well-worn copy of Sergio Bachaca's The True Life of Billy the Kid and stared at the brightly colored image on the cover. Talking to the book in a mocking tone, he said, You might as well come with us, too. When I'm done, they're going to have to start selling you in the fiction aisle. Farber laughed too hard at his own joke, slipping the book into the bag and zipping it up.